one class, and let's pray, all right? Lord, we, um, we ask for your presence to be heavy upon us this morning. I pray that as we open your word, you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. Keep us from error, Lord. Uh, lead us into truth, and may Jesus Christ be glorified. We pray it in his name. Well, if uh, I were looking for a new church, and some of you are looking for a church, there's a lot of things that just don't matter when it comes to looking for a church. A lot of insignificant things that don't amount to a hill of beans. Yet a lot of people seem to think that those insignificant things are really, really important. Right? On the other hand, there are a few things that are hugely significant, non-negotiable, absolutely essential things that a lot of people say, ah, oh well, whether the church has it or not, doesn't matter. And to their eternal peril, they go to churches that don't have those essential things. If I were looking for a church to plug into, to, to bring my family to, to pour myself into, the number one thing I would want to know is do they have the gospel right and is it faithfully, regularly proclaimed, unashamedly proclaimed? The non-negotiable question is this. Is the gospel the foundation of that church. Not just can you find the gospel embedded in the doctrinal statement somewhere. Okay? Not just is the word gospel spoken from the pulpit or sung about in songs. Everybody sings gospel music. Okay? Not just is the gospel assumed, but is it regularly, faithfully, clearly clearly proclaimed on a regular basis. If not, then that church is ashamed of the gospel. Our goal as a church, Jesus has commissioned us to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and to believers. The gospel is not just to unbelievers because the gospel is the fuel, the energy that uh, keeps believers going, right? It's not just for unbelievers. This is what Paul said. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. We, we began this morning with a call to worship, talking about the power that God has that raised Jesus from the dead. The gospel has that power. It is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is it. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, so many people, when you ask them, is your church a gospel-preaching, unashamed gospel-preaching church? Here's what I hear some people say. Well, not really. But we have so many friends who go to this gospel-ashamed church that it'd be hard to leave, right? Plus, our kids really enjoy the youth group. They notice the key word, enjoy, not that they are, get saved and they grow, but they do enjoy it. In other words, it's the only place they'll go, right? So, I hear what you're saying, but thanks, we're good. For many... It's far more about being socially comfortable than being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, to people who make that choice, yeah, we know we're not in a gospel-teaching, preaching church, but it'd be hard to leave. Here's what I want to ask them. What will you say when your kids fall away from the faith the moment they go off to college because they never had a faith to fall away from? You know, 90% of kids 
once they're out of youth group and they go off on their own, they stop going to church. What will you say on Judgment Day when God says, now let me get this straight. You supported with your time, with your tithe, you, you, you did tithe, didn't you? You supported with your time and your tithe and your attendance a church that you knew was soft on the gospel and hundreds of unsaved people could attend comfortably without any fear of going to hell and now they're in hell and you supported that? What were you thinking? What will you say to God on that day? This might be a good message to give, uh, give around, by the way. Um, some people say, well, you know, our church talks about the gospel, we sing about the gospel, but not all gospel talk is really the true gospel. Here the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, God, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to, look at this, a different gospel. See, there were, there were different gospels being proclaimed even in the first century. And Paul says, hey, Galatians, you're veering away from the true gospel that I preach to you. It's a different gospel. And then he pronounces this curse. But even if we, we apostles or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema, is what the Greek says. So not everybody who uses the word gospel is really proclaiming the gospel. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to examine what the Bible says the true gospel is. We're going to look at four things. God, sin, Christ, and grace. God, sin, Christ, and grace. Now, as we cover these four elements of the biblical gospel, I am not only going to point out the truth, about what the, the, the Bible teaches about the gospel, but I'm going to, as we go, point out false gospels. There are lots of false gospels that maybe even people in this room have as your paradigm in your head. So you go, Pastor, why do you point out error? Um, well, first of all, I point out error because it is my commission. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said this, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, which means point out error and correct it, rebuke, which means point out error and correct it, and exhort, which means passionately point out error and correct it, with complete patience and teaching. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The commission of the shepherd of the church is not only to proclaim the truth, but to point out error and call it error and call it heresy. Occasionally I get people who say, I don't like it when you point out error, it makes me nervous. And I would say, if you're in a church where the pastor never points out error, he's not doing his job. Right? Now, there are churches where that's all they do is point out error. Right? And that gets a little laborsome. But the world is awash in false gospels. So as we go through the true gospel, we need to, to point out some false gospels as we go. Now, let's begin by looking at God. Okay? A faulty view of God will inevitably lead to a faulty gospel. A wrong view of God will lead to a false gospel. Now, um, a couple of sociologists, Christian Smith and Melinda Lindquist Denton, uh, completed a massive study. Uh, it's called the National Study of Youth and Religion. They did in-depth scientific interviews with over 3,000 youth to find out what the youth in America really believe about God. What is the real theological view that young people have. And by the way, where do young people get it? They catch it from their parents. This is what young people believe, and this is what most people in America believe about God. This is their theology. 
right? It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, that's what the, the, the sociologists call it. I don't know that any kid would be able to uh, describe that. But they, they have a, not a biblical view of God, but their view is moralism, therapy, and God is, uh, they have a deistic view of God. What does that mean? Well, there's five tenets. One, they believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's called deism. Deism says God created this world, but now he's stepping back and just kind of watching it operate. He's not intervening on a regular basis. He just started the thing. He created the watch, and now the watch is ticking on its own. Right? They have a deistic view of God. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. That's where you get the word moralistic, moralism. All right? Now, beyond that, you don't, they don't have anything more specific, like it's sinful to sleep together before you're married. Homosexuality is wrong. Lying, cheating is wrong. You start getting, you know, stepping on toes and they don't like that. But be nice. That's the, the, the moralism. God's nice. You should be nice. He exists. He created us. Be nice. All right? um, number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Wouldn't you say that's the goal of most Americans? Be happy. Feel good. And that's where God comes in. That's called therapy. He wants you to feel good. So God helps in that. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except to resolve a problem. So um, your marriage is a mess. You need an A on your test. Um, You got health issues. You call out to God, and he makes you feel better. He's the therapist. The deistic God jumps in, and he's a therapist, and be nice. Okay? Then the, the fifth tenant is good people go to heaven when they die. What is good? Good is nice. If you're a nice guy, you go to heaven. That's it. That's what most people believe. And some of you are going, what's wrong with that? Okay. Well, here's what's missing. You notice there's not an ounce of concern about Judgment Day? The perfect holy standard of God? The perfect justice of God, the wrath of God, hell, the cross. This is just be nice and God will help you when you're in trouble. That's what most people hold to. That's what most people who go to church hold to. And the preaching is so tepid that people can go for years to church and it never changes. Right? Now, other people say, well, I don't like that hell, wrath, damnation stuff. I like the God that Jesus told us about. Right? I like the softer, gentler Jesus. Well, let's see what Jesus taught about these things. In um, Mark 9, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. 91% of the time, it's Jesus speaking of hell. Well, what's hell like? Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There's eternal fire, and the worm, you know what that's referring to? The rotting flesh, you know, the larvae who eat the body? Picture experiencing that in hell for eternity. Jesus not only spoke about hell. Remember last week we looked at the parable of the talents. And it's about judgment day. And the guy who did nothing with his life to build the kingdom of God, it says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He spoke of a judgment day and a very real hell. Right after this, he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says, and these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In the book of Revelation, this talks about the person who doesn't follow Christ and follows the beast. These are unbelievers, right? He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Some people talk about hell as, as being a, a place where you're out of the presence of God. No, he's right there. Jesus, the Lamb, is there, and you are being tormented in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Right? So Jesus, soft and gentle Jesus, Jesus the Lamb, spoke of judgment because he loved people. He wanted to warn people. So uh, when it comes to your view of God, absolutely, God is a loving God. There is no doubt about that, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But does your view of the loving God also include a wrathful God who must punish sin? Does it involve a view of hell? Does it involve a view of damnation? Does it involve a place for the cross, for Jesus to be nailed to the cross, to pay the wrath of God? Moralistic therapeutic deism doesn't. It's just be nice, be good, and good people go to heaven. No cross needed. So here are some questions to ask uh, as you're looking for a church. One, is the reality of Judgment Day and the eternal wrath of God a regular theme in the preaching of your church? If not, then the gospel is not the foundation of that church. Get out! What are you doing wasting your valuable life there? Find a church that proclaims the gospel, not just a social club. Right? Number two, does 1 Corinthians 2.2 seem out of place in your church? Paul said this, here's the theme. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If that is not the constant drumbeat, it was for Paul. If it's not the constant drumbeat of your church, what are you doing there? What does it exist for? Right. Number three, can people comfortably hold to moralistic therapeutic deism week after week, month after month, year after year? It's true in so many churches. I would hope that a person who holds that theology and comes here or comes to a gospel preaching church would say, I've got a wrong view of God. I've got a wrong view of myself. I've got a wrong view of eternity. Right? Number four, do people ever leave offended? Now you go, oh yeah, people leave our church all the time. Gladys was just upset with Mary Lynn about the potluck the other day. No, I don't mean over trivia. I mean, do they ever leave over being told the gospel that they are damned because of their sin outside of Christ. You see, those who don't want to hear that are going to get mad and leave. But here's the deal. The church growth movement today says your church is a business. And just like Walmart, you've got to attract people. And you aren't going to attract people with that message. So you've got to tell them things that's going to attract them and keep them because market share is at stake, right? So we need to make everybody happy. And here's what Jesus said about that. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. A church that's stated strategy is to keep everybody happy is a false prophet church. Do you believe that? then why do so many people go? Itching ears. They will gather to themselves, teachers, to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Right. That's God. Let's talk about sin. Right. Sin. When the true gospel is preached, sinners will realize two things. Number one, that they are sinners. Right. And two that their number one problem is a wrath of God problem. You go to church today, you would think the number one problem that people have is an economy problem today. 
or a number one problem is a parental problem, or your number one problem is a marriage problem, or your number one problem is, is learning how to do better communication. Your number one problem sinner is an eternal wrath of God hanging over your head problem. Right? The false gospel that so many people have bought into today Okay, and by the way, the, the, first, the first false gospel is what I'm just going to simply call um, the wrathless gospel. There's no wrath, therefore there's no real need to come, other than we can do things, we can talk about things like Dr. Phil talks about, so let's talk about those things. So that's the wrathless gospel. The second gospel is what I'm going to call the therapeutic gospel. What's the therapeutic gospel? Well, people say, well, well, Sure, we're sinners, but our biggest problem is we're broken people in need of healing, or we're purposeless people in need of a purpose-driven life, or we're unhappy people in need of happiness. If that's... And by the way, the church today says, we know that's what people want, so let's twist the gospel and give them happiness, give them purpose, pacify their brokenness. Your problem is not your brokenness or your marriage or your family or your unhappiness. It's that the wrath of God hangs over your head for eternity. God is mad at you for your sin. And if that is not your number one problem, you're wasting your time at that church. How can they not tell you the truth? It's like going to a cancer doctor. Just full of cancer. But he says, you know, take some of these Flintstone chewables and have a good day. Right? The first, the first duty of the gospel preacher, before we get to the good news. By the way, there's really good news coming. But before you get to the good news, the first duty of the gospel preacher is to proclaim the bad news. That we are sinners under the wrath of God. This is what gospel preachers have always taught. And how do you do that? You teach the law of God first. The law exposes your sin and shows you your need for a Savior. Let me show you some quotes. Martin Luther said this. The first duty of the gospel preacher is to declare God's law and show the nature of sin. Right? And he says this, Satan, the god of all dissension, stirs up daily new sects. Sects. Right? And last of all, he has raised up a sect such as teach that men should not be terrified by the law, but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ. He is saying it's unbelievable, it's hard to believe that there are actually people out there who don't preach the law and show people their need for for a Savior. And I would say, what would Luther do today? He would would look like a rotisserie chicken rolling over in his grave today. John Wesley, before I can preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, Law and judgment. In writing to a young friend, he went so far as to advise preach 90% law and 10% grace. This is what Spurgeon said. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain, for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its ablest auxiliary, its most powerful weapon, when you have set aside the law. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that brings men to Christ. They will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary and blessed purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. Let me ask you this. In the church you go to, do you tremble before a just and holy law? If not, it's romper room. You're bringing your family to a church that doesn't tell you the truth. Now, here is uh, here's a book that every pastor has in his library. 
And it's uh, the book on church growth. I don't care if you're Baptist. I don't care if you're Methodist. Every pastor has this book on his shelf. And, yeah, there's some good things in the book about how to grow your church. Okay? Now, when I see a book like that, my one question is, what do they say about preaching? I don't care about the building size or whether you even have a building or the parking lot or the, uh, the bulletin. You notice there's no bulletin today. We just gave you a piece of paper. I don't care about those things. They think those things are very important. Okay? I just want to know one thing. What do they say about preaching? And here's my contention. Most church growth scams are built on watered-down preaching. You want to grow your church, you better lower the preaching. That's what, uh, that's, that's my belief, okay? What does he say about preaching? All right, let, let me read some things. Jesus, not anyone else, must be our model for preaching. Now, I like that, all right? Let's go with what Jesus said. All right, so Jesus is going to be our model. So, he says, um, he was always relevant and always on target for the moment, so Jesus, was, he, knew, he knew what was buzzing out there. He was plugged in. He knew what people needed to hear. Okay? When Jesus preached his first sermon at Nazareth, he read from Isaiah to announce the preaching agenda of his ministry, what it would be. The Lord has put his spirit on me because he has appointed me to tell the good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to open the eyes of the blind. Um, and then he, he says this, notice the complete emphasis on meeting needs and healing hurts. Jesus had good news to share, so people wanted to hear it. His message offered practical benefits to those who listened to him. His truth would set people free and bring all sorts of blessings to their lives. And I, I was hoping he would go on to expound the passage, but that's it. You read that and you go, oh, Jesus, he knew, he knew to, where to scratch it where it itched, right? And he, he gave people benefits and good news. You know what he doesn't tell? In that same passage, Jesus goes on to look at his hometown people and say, you know, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. And they were offended, and they picked him up and carried him out of the synagogue to the edge of the town built on a cliff, and they were going to throw him over and kill him. That was left out. But what he takes is, tell him the good stuff. What about the, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown? Right? He goes on to say, if it isn't good news, it isn't the gospel. Crowds always flock to hear good news. There's enough bad news in the world that the last thing people need to hear is more bad news when they come to church. These guys are wrong then. Luther, Calvin... Wesley Spurgeon, they're preaching that bad news. They, what, what were they thinking? They don't know how to do church right. right. A good salesman knows you always start with the customer's needs, not the product. Oh, so let's base preaching and church growth on salesmanship. Good thing, marketers. Let's get some more marketers here. Okay. Then here's what he does. He gives the example of the, the great... Oh, by the way, look at this. Ephesians 4.29 says, Speak only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So absolutely true when it comes to personal relationships. We need to be strategic and build one another up, but we do need to speak the truth in love. But of course, that's speaking about personal relationships. That's not preaching instruction. He's not going to turn that into preaching instruction, is he? Notice that what we say should be determined by the needs of the people whom we're speaking, to whom we're speaking. We are to speak only what benefits them. It stands to reason that if this is God's will for our conversations, it must also be God's will for our sermons. Oh, I guess we're, we're not really supposed to talk about anything that would upset anybody because you're only supposed to Build them up. He goes on to talk about the Sermon on the Mount being just this great sermon that's relevant and it helps people. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by sharing eight secrets for genuine happiness. Then he talked about living an exemplary lifestyle, controlling your anger, 
uh, restoring relationships, avoiding adultery and divorce. Next, he spoke of keeping promises and returning good for evil. After that, he moved on to other practical life issues, like how to give with the right attitude, how to pray, how to store up treasure in heaven, and how to overcome worry. He wrapped up his message by telling us not to judge others, to be persistent when asking God to meet our needs, and to be wary of false teachers. Then he concluded with a simple story that emphasized the importance of acting on what he taught. This kind of uh, this is the kind of preaching we need in churches today, preaching that not only attracts crowds, it changes lives. You know what he left out? That Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, all those commands, all those laws, as the perfect standard by which you will be judged on Judgment Day outside of Christ. He said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you that if you look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart, and you need to fight lust perfectly, or you will go to hell outside of Christ. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I tell you that if you have anger towards somebody, you've already committed murder. And you will be judged by that stand. This is not good news. This is the perfect standard. Now, it becomes good news when we get to the good news. But to turn it into helpful advice, practical advice where the non-believer can go, oh, boy, I really learned a lot today. I'm going to really try to watch my anger. No, it's not watch your anger. It's if you have become angry in an unrighteous manner. You deserve to go to hell. You see the difference between what is preached today and what the Bible teaches? Now, here's another question we need to ask. Is the law preached in your church as helpful tips for a better life or as the perfect standard by which all outside of Christ will be judged? Wow, we have come a long way. Now, you go, is there any good news, Pastor? Well, let's get to the good news. Christ. Okay. Now, now let me explain the gospel. Christ came to be nailed to a cross. That wasn't an accident. That was his purpose for leaving the glory of heaven and being born a baby And growing up to be nailed to a cross in our place. Now, a lot of people are confused about this. They go, why? Couldn't God just forgive us? Why did he need to die on a cross? Well, because of two attributes of God. One, he is perfectly loving. And two, he is perfectly just. What is just? He's perfectly righteous. As a judge, he perfectly calls all sin as sin, and it must be punished. His justice requires just, perfect punishment for all violations of the law, which are violations against him. So the illustration I like to give is this. The story is told of a woman who was speeding. She pulled over. The cop said, here's a ticket, $100. She said, I don't have $100. He said, you could try to fight it in court. She goes to traffic court, and she pleads her case, and the judge brings down his gavel. He says, guilty, ma'am, 100 bucks, pay the the bailiff, and she starts to cry. The judge gets up from behind the, the bench, takes off his robe, goes down to the bailiff, takes out his wallet, and pays the bailiff $100 from his own wallet because the judge was her father. Now, If he, as her father, heard the case and thought to himself, she's guilty of sin, but because I'm the judge, I'm just going to let it slide, that would be a travesty of justice. He would not be a just judge. But because he's a perfectly just judge, he sentences her, he finds her, and then out of love, he pays the fine himself. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the cross. 
God's holiness and God's wrath is not ignored. In love, it's absorbed by Himself. He pays the full price. Is He loving? Oh, absolutely. He doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants to save you. And He died on the cross to pay the full price for your sin. You know, in the book of Romans... Paul presents God's problem as a justice problem. How can God bring you to heaven with your unpaid sins? So it says this in Romans 3. It speaks of Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a, a sacrifice that, that absorbed the wrath of God. He put him forth as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, God's justice, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What that means is Old Testament saints, they're in heaven now, but their sins weren't punished. So what's he going to do? It was to show, this propitiation on the cross, to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith. God wants to justify you, declare you forgiven and perfect, but he can't justly do that unless somebody pays the price. So to be just, he pays the price himself, and now when those who believe in him believe in him, he can justly, righteously call you just in his sight. That's why we need the cross. Is the cross the center of the preaching at your church? Or is it a bunch of helpful things and moralistic things? Don't do this. You should do this. You'll have a better life if you try it this way. God's word has lots of wisdom in it. We should live this way. Here's the question. Could the message preached in church be preached in a synagogue, a mosque, or Dr. Phil with no one being upset? So many messages. You could preach it in a Jewish synagogue, Islamic mosque, Dr. Phil, Oprah. Because it's void of blood. If it doesn't have the blood of the cross, it's not a Christian message. It's just a moralistic message. Right? Now, last part. Very important. You go, okay, Jesus died on the cross. Does everybody get that? Is everybody in? If you're Rob Bell, everybody's in. Some of you don't know who that is. Don't worry about it, okay? The fourth point, grace. Grace. How do I get, how do you get what Jesus did for you? We better get this one right, because your eternity's hanging in the balance. Right? Now here's what Ephesians says. By the way, I tell people, if you're new to the faith, you've got to memorize certain verses. John 3.16 is a good place to start. The second verse on my list is Ephesians 2.8 and 9, all right? which says this, For by grace you have been saved. What's grace? Grace is a gift. Grace is God giving you a gift. Not something you earn. It's something he has earned for you. So you're saved by grace, by a gift. For by grace you have been saved through, here's the key, faith. And this, not your, of your own doing, it is the gift of God. There's that gift of God idea, right? Now look at this. You go, well, it just surely can't be faith alone. we got to earn our way, don't we? Don't we have to be good people to earn our way to heaven? Don't we have to do good works? Paul goes out of his way to say it's by grace, through faith, not a result of works. Not a result of works. You are not saved by faith plus works. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. If it was Jesus plus one thing you did, on judgment day, and you get into heaven, you could say, thank you, Jesus, and plus the other reason I'm here is because I helped that little old lady across the street and those people in hell didn't. You could boast. 
If there's any cause for boasting, it's not the right gospel. Now, you go, but what about good works? Shouldn't Christians be different? Absolutely, Christians should be different. But let's put it in the right order. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh yes, there's plenty of good works, but you're not saved by them. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and once you're saved, you know what happens? You do all kinds of good works out of gratitude for what he's done for you, but not to earn salvation. Okay, So you could say it this way. Salvation is by grace, as a gift of God, through faith alone in Christ, and the result, the evidence, will be good works. Right? Now, um, I need to point out that the church split in two, not this church, but the church split in two back in the 1500s, called the Reformation. Because Martin Luther read his Bible, and he said, there's all kinds of verses like this that say we're saved by faith, not by faith plus what we do. All these sacraments and having to earn our way out of purgatory and buying indulgences. And the church said, you're wrong. Who are you, Martin Luther, to defy the infallible church. And Luther says, just little boo here and my Bible. You get that? Little boo. Okay. Um, my Bible says we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works. Well, how dare you? And that church was split in two. And the Protestant Reformation was begun. And the church he left gathered together at the Council of Trent in the 1500s, and they came up with the doctrines of Trent, the canons of Trent. And here's Canon 24 on the doctrine of justification. It's still in force today. Now remember, we say you're saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and works are merely the fruit of your justification, not the basis, not the cause of it. Here's what Trent says. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Let him be cut off. we got a dilemma. Two opposite Gospels. One says you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And your works are the fruit, not the cause, not the basis of your justification. The other church says, that's a damned gospel. That, that gospel you preach is a damned gospel. The justification, the good works done under the grace of God actually contributes to your justification. One's right, one's wrong. Both can't be true unless you're really postmodern and a total relativist who has no law of non-contradiction in your mind. These are both opposite. So many people today say, oh, there's no difference. Just pick a church, whichever one, as long as they talk about Jesus. Trent condemned the true gospel, and the true gospel condemns Trent. You can't have it both ways. So let me ask you. You stand before God on Judgment Day, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Is it answer A? You shouldn't, but I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation, or answer B, you should let me in because I'm trusting in Christ, plus I've got these sacraments and these prayers and I did all this stuff. Which one are you banking on for your eternal salvation? One will send you to hell. See, you don't get this very many places because you're not allowed to point out error. But it's hard to hide history. The church split in two over one word, the word alone. Either you're justified by grace alone and Christ alone, or you're not. Which one is it? Now, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But God is so good. He gives us not only doctrine, he gives us the demonstration of the doctrine. 
And the demonstration is found where? As Jesus is dying on the cross, the thief on the cross next to him. At first he's hurling insults at Jesus, and then he has a change of heart. He repents, and he places his faith in Jesus, and he says, remember me, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, sorry, buddy, you haven't done enough good works. Right? Let me see your baptismal certificate. Are you in the right church? Have you, have you bought some indulgences? What about your purgatory dues? No, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in purgatory? No, in paradise. Saved by faith alone before our very eyes. If ever there was a clear picture of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's the thief on the cross that backs up Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. All right? So the, uh, the false gospel is the faith plus gospel. Faith plus sacraments. And we, we do sacraments. We baptize. We do the Lord's Supper. But it's, we don't believe it gives us magical merit before God. We do it to worship God. Right? So there's the faith plus gospel that's a false gospel. Now I've got to do one last one. One last one. See, some of you skipped last week, so we're doubling up today, all right? Um, there's the faith minus gospel. The faith minus gospel says it's faith minus repentance. Okay? Um, there's a group of Protestant theologians that is so paranoid about not adding works to the gospel, not adding works to salvation, that they say if you call people to repent of their sin, that that's adding works to the gospel. Well, first of all, let's just ask biblically, is it legitimate to call people not only to believe in Jesus, but also to turn from their sin, to repent? Well, let's just do a couple of things here. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, here was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to belief. Well, yes, but that says sinners to repentance. This one should settle it. Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish you don't repent, you will go to hell. Luke 24, 47, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then uh, Paul says this, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 20, 21, Paul sums up his ministry. I've declared both to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Right? Now, why is calling people to repent not adding works to the gospel? Well, let me explain what repentance is, and I've done this before, but if this is living for Jesus, facing this direction, and facing this direction is turning your back on him and living for sin, the, act, the moment of salvation, God changes the heart. And in, when the heart changes, the heart turns to Jesus to embrace him. And the very act of turning to Christ is the very act of turning away from sin. That's called repentance. Are they distinguishable things? Yes, they are distinguishable, thing, distinguishable things on paper, but they cannot be separated. Theologians use that phrase a lot. They can be distinguished but never separated. Okay. Now, here's why it's not adding works to the gospel. Because faith and repentance are a supernatural work of God where he transplants your heart. Here's what happens when you become a true believer. God said this in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone 
and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep all my laws. To keep my laws. When you get a new heart, it's a new heart that now hates sin and loves Christ. That doesn't want to live in disobedience and wants to obey your new master. So, throughout the scriptures, we have those who preach the gospel calling people, believe in the Lord Jesus and repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ and trust in Him. It's not a work that you earn salvation by. It's a supernatural change of heart where you are turning to Christ, embracing Him, and you know you are stepping out of this life into a new life that He gives you. So here's a question you could ask. Does the call to believe in Jesus as Savior in my church include a call to receive Him as Lord? Or is it just believe believe in Him as Savior and go on living like the devil? Does the call to turn to Christ include a call to turn from sin? Not to earn your way, but because the very definition of turning to Christ is also the definition of turning from sin. So, hopefully we've clarified the gospel. Now, the all-important part, let's put it together. The bad news. We're all sinners who have shaken our fists at God. God's standard, because He's perfectly just, is perfection. We have all fallen short of that standard. And He is a perfectly just just judge. And if you think you can stand before that judgment seat on your own on judgment day, you're fooling yourself. But God in His love becomes a man is nailed to a cross, absorbs the wrath of God in payment for our sins, and all who respond to grace and trust in Christ, they turn from their sin and turn to Christ and embrace Him in their heart, you're saved. Isn't that good news? All right. Maybe some of you said, it's never been that, it's been fuzzy with all these false gospels. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All right. Let me pray. Worship team, come on up. Maybe you're, you're here and you're saying, it seems too good to be true. It is. It's true and it's too good. What do I do? Do I have to uh, jump through a bunch of hoops and get sacramental grace and No, Jesus is alive and well in this room. And all who receive him by trusting him, not trusting your sacraments or your good works or your earning your way out of purgatory, but just trusting him. Trust him. Knowing that you're entering into a new life of following him. Trust him and you will be saved. Jesus, thank you that you paid 100% of our debt and that you call us to turn to you and you promise salvation and justification to all who trust in you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.